The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody tonight. Thought I'd continue the conversation that we've been having here the last couple of weeks. Um, in some ways, it's looking at how love, or I always like to define love as that capacity of the heart or mind to be close, to be right with what's being felt, what's being seen, what's being understood, and to really learn to value that. So it's, it's really just another word for what we mean by mindful awareness, right? Because mindful awareness is that capacity of the mind to connect. And then the real art, like the reason we practice, is can we sustain that intimate, profound connection with what's so ordinary, what's here and now? I think it's fine to call that love, too. It's like a reformation of the word love. And then the real dance in our practice, you know, as we understand that the freedom we seek, the skill we seek in life, the, is really, it's, a, it's about this connection. So even, it's funny because so much of our practice seems to be about retreating, Life is a little too real, a little too intense, a little too confusing, ambiguous. And so it's like we can imagine that what is spiritual is somehow not this, not the messiness of the world, the hate in the world, the confusion in the world, the meanness, the greed, the ambiguity. So I need to go to this very refined place, some heavenly refined place where my buttons don't get pushed, where it's not irritating or agitating. So we can think of, and then that idea gets, that wrong idea gets reinforced by this very important form in Buddhist practice of sitting down and meditating. Or, you know, we're using that form we call meditation as a way of collecting the energies of the mind, unifying the energies of the mind, and basically cultivating a very healthy mind, right? A mind that's unified, not dispersed, not scattered, not fragmented, not caught in dramas. That mind is a beautiful mind. It's a useful mind. It's a functional mind. But that's the idea isn't to retreat from the world because it's messy. The idea is to learn how to be somebody who's in the world (laughs) because we are in the world. And the thing, if we find or if we think, imagine that the answer is to somehow get some distance. Like, God, if I could only live in a place where everybody is the way I think people should be. We still wouldn't be happy because we would know there are other places where I'm not, you know, where people are not happy or people are suffering or people are being mean to each other. So even if you could get yourself to the proverbial heaven, it would still, we'd still have to deal with the fact 
that there are health, there's health. And people are living there, beings are living there. It wouldn't matter that we have wealth or we have health or we're around people we feel safe with, realizing that you know, we'd have to work really hard at being unaware that there are other realities. That itself is stressful. So any real freedom has to involve an outright exposure. It doesn't mean we have to live in every war zone or show up for all the suffering immediate in an immediate and a direct way. It just means that our, our happiness can't be dependent on being disconnected. That's not a real happiness. But it's something, right? When you go home and take a hot bath, crawl into your bed, have your, you know, find your little comfort place where you feel safe, the people you feel safe with, the place you feel safe, that's something. It's a temporary respite. So last week I started talking about our practice in terms of the stance between what sometimes in the Buddhist tradition we call seclusion, where we're really appreciating that retreating from what's agitating, what's disturbing the mind, where we practice putting down the sense of responsibility temporarily. Temporarily, the person who feels responsible, who cares, who wants the world to be a better place, temporarily... That person, in a sense, just to be provocative, dies. We do this every night when we have a deep sleep, when we go into deep sleep, dreamless sleep, where that all of the constructions of being a somebody who has its that somebody's concerns or aspirations or passions, all of that ceases for a while. That's why we call it deep sleep. And it's very restful to put down the load. Or maybe you do deep relaxation practice. Or maybe you're a good meditator. And at times in your practice, the mind turns inward, right? And the mind opens to the mind that's empty of drama. Empty of worrying about this, or planning that, or judging, or comparing or all of that activity that involves the mind dividing things up. And, and sort of in terms of concentration, or that samadhi, that collectedness of mind, that unification of mind, we talk about the non-diversification of the mind. Because that diversification, me and you, this and that, good and bad, here and there, yesterday, tomorrow, all of that, is constructed with thought. And when the mind retreats from that, withdraws from that cognitive activity, withdraws from seeing and touching, the skin still feels sensation, still like the electrical system of the nervous system is still operating. The eyes are still sensitive to visual form. The nose is sensitive to the olfactory reality and the tongue is sensitive to taste, but the attention withdraws from it. So instead of orienting around our sense experience and our cognitive, what we're thinking, the mind withdraws from it 
And it, it seems like in a world that we live in, like, well, no, the world needs our engagement, and it does. But the interesting thing we find when we pay attention in life is engagement, how we show up in all the places we have responsibilities, all the places that are life that's kind of drawing us in because of our karma, because of our duties and responsibilities and our concerns, turns out that we show up in a much more skillful way if we're also practicing putting everything down and we're involved in that dance. And the difference between an ordinary person, like all of us, and somebody who we might call a saint or who's deeply wise is a a very well-practiced person, like a Buddha, that dance between, let's say, emptiness, the mind that can put down all of its neurotic activity, and the mind that is engaging and showing up and responding and acting and doing, that's happening at the same time. And for an ordinary human being, we have to sit down and meditate. We have to lie down in savasana and do a deep relaxation. We have to go to sleep and get into deep sleep to put down the world. Right? We have to practice to put it down. But uh, an, an enlightened being, right? somebody who's waking up or in moments, it's actually better to talk about in enlightened moments instead of enlightened beings. When there are enlightened moments, it's the mind isn't forgetting the emptiness, even as it's the personality is doing this, saying this, refraining from doing that, completely exposed in the messiness of the world, completely showing up. So think about how that dance might look like in your life. And in particular, reflect on what you tend to be good at and what you tend to avoid, right? I mean, just to be simplistic, maybe half of us tend to uh, like engagement and doing and are attached and thinking that's the way, right? And the other half, you know, we're just looking for ways to protect ourselves, to draw back, to sort of get out of the mess. It's messy. These people are crazy. Having to earn a living is problematic. You know, paying off school loans or doing this or being involved in an intimate relationship, that's a headache. And and we imagine our particular our own particular version of heaven like not having to deal with whatever is hard for us to deal with. Right? Anybody? Does that sound familiar to half of you? Right? And the other half, you know, we're, our tendency is to get on the horse and ride into life. I'm going to do this. I'm going to fix this. This is not okay. I'm going to find this. I'm going to make this happen. And so what we have to do is when we see what our tendency is, it's not like it's bad. It's just like, Interesting to to look at, well, what, what would putting down the load look like in my life? Or what would engagement look like in my life? How can I explore engagement? If that seems threatening to me to go into something that's a little messy and learn to relax a little bit more completely, giving yourself 
permission, like I don't know what I'm going to say in this situation, I don't know how I'm going to show up, but I'm going to lean in, I'm just going to sign up for this, I'm just going to do this. And I'll see, I'll learn, I'll make a mess of it, and I'll learn from that. I'll end up doing something that appears to be really skillful, and I'll learn from that. So some of us need to add that to our practice, the sort of engagement piece, or emphasize that is probably more true. And then some of us need to emphasize the retreating and get really interested, like, why I'm afraid to put on the load. Do I somehow erroneously, arrogantly think that I have to hold the world up on my shoulders? I have to, like, if I don't do this, nobody will. So it's like, if that's more the tendency of the mind, then it's like, well, let me. maybe I'll go to the meeting, but I won't speak up. Or maybe instead of going to the meeting, I'll go home and I'll lie down. And I'll let the world swirl. I'll let everything unfold. And I'll notice what it feels like to not be playing the role of a doer, of someone engaging. Not forever, just for that half an hour or that hour or that whatever. And you see the two purify the, each one purifies the other. Like learning to sit down and go to zero, right, in practice, learning to put it down helps us to show up. And engaging, going into where it's messy, really purifies what we learn by retreating. Because, you know, to whatever degree we sit and meditate or go to our quiet space, maybe you go out into the wilderness somewhere or you've got your own way of disappearing. Some of them obviously are not as healthy, wholesome as others, like absorbing into media of one kind. Maybe it's relatively wholesome media, right? Or you, you know, whatever it is, watching sentimental movies or reading history or, you know, talking about things that aren't harmful or wrong, but not ultimately going to change you or the world for the better. Filling up the space of our life with this or that. Right? So this is like things we absorb into. And we can see like, oh, I'm avoiding... Like, I'm really afraid. I'm, I'm cultivating this fear of what is disturbing, what's agitating, what's messy. So then we look. Well, let me practice. Maybe it's action. Because you know what we do? We end up painting or finding ourselves, imprisoning ourselves. Because the more we think that pulling back from the messiness is the way, the more we get into a more narrow, tight, space, where the world becomes the enemy, the messiness of the world, the uncertainty of relationship, the confusing, like one of the things that inspires us to draw back is like, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to contribute. Well, yeah, but that may be true. I mean, that might be actually an insight. You might not know what to say or do. That's actually, that could be wisdom. It often is. But that doesn't mean not doing is a more skillful thing than doing, just because we know that we don't know what to do. Maybe the most skillful thing is, well, I'll try something and I'll pay attention and see if it helps. 
and I'll learn along the way. Like I'll start by saying this or doing this, and I'll see what that sets in motion. And then I'll learn from that, and I'll do the next thing. So we don't have the perfect map. So we say, oh, I'm going to engage, and I, and then this, and then. We don't know how it's going to play out. All we know is pulling back, in this moment, seems less skillful than leaning in. And to really begin to appreciate how the two feed on each other and how you can see, not just generally, but each day you're seeing how you're strengthening that ability to put everything down. Even in the middle of a heated exchange at work, in a relationship, around some of the issues you care about in the world, and things are intense, even then you can go to that place of abandoning certainty, abandoning knowing what you're doing, abandoning being somebody with an objective, and you can be empty for a moment, like the one who doesn't know. I don't know if I'm going to stay or leave. And it's like, so the person who's certain, the person who knows what to do, that person has to die for a second or 10 seconds or maybe a couple minutes. It's really possible. But that doesn't mean that in a few moments another person will be born who has some relative clarity, just enough to say the next thing in the interaction and then to die, right? That's more the awakened state, the enlightened state, is when we can do it moment by moment in our interactions. But the reason we can do that is because we're sometimes engaging and we're not... It's like the only way we can engage is we pretend we know what we're doing because everything else is too scary. But that's okay. We'll just see how that works. right? Like... So we engage our relationship, our intimate relationship, or our family. Some of you on Thursday, engaging your family, political issues, social issues, work issues, engaging with that certainty, but we just keep tracking it, and we'll learn. And then maybe not until later in the day when we're home, away from the work scene or the relationship scene, then we go to zero. Right? It's like everything's swirling because however we engage what we were engaging was not so perfect, right? So there's a lot of leftover stuff. And then we we sit down, we lie down, we feel everything that's moving, and we gather the energy of the mind. Instead of like thinking it through, we come back to the body. We come back to the breath in the body. We come back to a basic sense of kindness for what's present, like the swirl, the, the feeling tone of the swirl. Not the content, right? Because we're letting that die. The guy who's responsible for the content, the person that wants to not be the person who said what I said or wants it, wants to clean it up, that person temporarily dies. We're not living through that person who needs to fix it, wants it to be done, wants it to be better. It is the way that it is. And I'm just going to feel what I feel. right? And this is why we train with the experience of embodiment, just feeling viscerally what's left over from the life that's been lived up to this point. Oh, it's like this. This is how the past is expressing itself. Everything that I've ever done and and said and thought feels like this. This is the cumulative result 
of whatever this body-mind karmic stream is, this, feeling this, opening to this, relaxing with this, is the karmic result, right? So this is what I mean by instead of being this somebody who's trying to fix this, make this better, I'm just willing to drop the doer for a moment, right? And we gather the energies of the mind and just being, being kind, being awake, being sensitive. So we're in a sense, we're taking refuge in the knowing, not in the doing. And with practice, we get better at it, like everything. And that's half of the spiritual life, half of making the world a better place, half of engaging the world in ways that set beautiful things in motion, healing in motion, justice in motion. Half of it is learning to put it down. Because putting it down means we're willing to feel what it feels like when the world is this way, the world of our own life, our own body, right? Because it's all right here. So we sit down for half an hour. We go on a retreat from time to time. Maybe you sit for an hour a day, or some of you two hours a day, or maybe some of you five minutes every other day. But everybody needs to practice putting it down. Because there's no getting wiser about engagement without putting it down. And this is the dance we have to realize that, as I said earlier, they are both informing the other. Otherwise, the engagement isn't an act of love. Engagement is an act of desperation. I can't stand being the person I am, so I've got to do something. Or I can't stand the world being the way it is. I hate the way it is. I want it to be this other way. So without going to the practice of going to zero, all of our engagement and everything we do, from feeding this little beastly body to having relationships to trying to make the world a better place, everything we do will be done through greed, anger, and delusion. And it's only when we learn to put it all down. That's what the definition from the Buddhist teachings of putting it all down means that we're realizing moments when greed, anger, and delusion have ceased in the mind, temporarily, for moments. And we realize what the mind is. This is what I mean by that unified or collected mind that we get, the samadhi that we talk about, the concentration or the quiet mind. It's a mind where greed, anger, delusion have temporarily ceased, sort of fallen into the background. And so now the mind is realizing the mind, waking up to the mind. You can use the word heart here. Waking up to the heart that's free of greed, anger, and delusion. See, and that's like a whole different view then on how to engage. Now there's like a new window. How to be a lover, how to be a parent, how to be a citizen, somebody who cares about justice, somebody who wants to pay off my school loans. or But how to do that with a mind free of greed, anger, and delusion? What does engagement look like? How to feed my body without greed, anger, and delusion? How to watch the news without greed, anger, and delusion? 
how to make this phone call without greed, anger, and delusion, or clean the bathroom, or go to this protest, or do this you know, engagement in the world, how to do it without greed, anger, and delusion. See, now we have a, some intuition what that will look like because we see temporarily the mind that isn't dominated by greed, anger, and delusion because we've let that, let that pattern die. We've sat for 30 minutes or we've done some practice to put it down. And then engagement looks different. And you see this, those of you who have been involved in justice movements or other kinds of family healing or other difficult work in life, and you see some of the time, those of you engaged in the work, it's all being done with greed, anger, and delusion. And it's like knocking your head against the wall. I mean, everyone wants things to improve, but the only motivations we know are greed, anger, and delusion. So nothing, it's like this, yeah, it doesn't get better. I mean, or one step forward, one step back. And then things can switch, where all of a sudden, the sort of vibration of the interaction, of the movement, is coming out of love, coming out of wisdom, coming out of non-greed, non-anger, non-delusion. And all of a sudden, amazing progress can be made very quickly. It can be a very powerful movement. There's this great line from Martin Luther King that I love, where he talks about the dynamic of love and power. Let me just read this to, for you. He says, power is the ability to achieve purpose. Right? Because we all want things to get better. Right? We want our personality to be better. We want the world to be better. Power is the ability to achieve purpose. It is the strength required to bring about social, political, and economic changes. In this sense, power is not only desirable, but necessary in order to implement the demands of love and justice. And this is the interesting part. One of the greatest problems of history is that the concepts of love and power are usually contrasted as polar opposites. Love is identified with resignation of power and power with a denial of love. What is needed is the realization that power without love is reckless and abusive and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love, implementing the demands of justice. Justice at its best is love, correcting everything that stands against love. And I think this is really the what we discover, you know, in doing our practice of learning how when in those moments when life is sort of asking this of us, learning how to lean into what's confusing, what's messy, what's disturbing, what's unpleasant. Remember, and sometimes what's disturbing is pleasant, right? Leaning into that, like people like us, people are praising us. That can be really disturbing too in its own way, like how to lean in. How You know, like sometimes when people are generous or saying nice things, we, we want to dismiss it. It's like, well, no, it's like a gift. I need to, I have to let it in. What am I afraid of? Right? That's a, sometimes the engaging the moment means letting in the beauty, letting in the love, letting in the gratitude or whatever is showing up for us. So finding that the power 
to change is really this dynamic of dropping the world and picking it up. Right? Because when we drop it, we're really dropping the greed, anger, and delusion. It may not last long, but in those moments when we've dropped greed, anger, and delusion, we actually know how to have a moment with our spouse or our lover. I mean, I think without those moments, no relationship would last. We can have, you know, 99% of the moments we have with our partner can be mostly about greed, anger, and delusion. That if we have a moment every once in a while where it's really not greed, anger, and delusion, it's really just a more natural dance of love, that's okay. That, that can take care of us for a while. We can tolerate then falling back into that other dynamic where there's a lot of fear and a lot of greed, a lot of neediness, a lot of sort of business manipulation, like, okay, I'll do this for you if you do this for me, but I need... It's like that exchange, like, I'm not going to let go of this until you give me that, you know? It's like, who's got power in this situation? How can I use my power to get what I need? You know, I'm not getting what I need. That's most of our relationship, not just with our partners, but with our work scene, even with justice, work is- or, um, change, social change issues, trying to make the world a better place, environmental work, whatever it might be. Well, I'm not going to make these sacrifices if nobody else is making the sacrifice. I mean, we have these kind of attitudes. But when things line up, we're so happy to engage. We're so happy to be fearless, to be generous, to kind of lean in, to show up, to be awake, to speak truth to power, Keep quiet when that's appropriate. Because it's when it's coming out of love, the other way of saying that is it's just, it's just nature. Because like, greed, anger, delusion is just another way of saying the self, the sense of being apart, sense of being separate, the fear-based self is trying to fix the world. That it always messes it up because it's misunderstanding what's going on. We don't really know how to live our life unless we put everything down. Even in the littlest or most ordinary places, we don't know how to brush our teeth unless we push things down. Most of the time when we do something ordinary like brush our teeth or sweep the floor or shop, again, it's the activity of greed, anger, and delusion. It may look functional on the surface, but it's really setting emotion suffering for ourselves and for others. So can we do these little things? Can we put down greed, anger, and delusion and then take it into the next moment of action, of engagement? And then, right, then because of the force of habit, greed, anger, and delusion, you know, the neurotic tendencies of our mind, the force of habit will get reignited and there we will be doing whatever we're doing next with greed, anger, and delusion, or some neurotic habit, right? But then we'll notice things are heavy. Or maybe something can be put down. What can be put down? We basically cultivate a taste for putting it down and then leaning in. See, it's not enough to put it down because we get attached to... The easy way to put things down is to run away from what triggers greed, anger, and delusion. 
But then the self gets dependent on being away from my triggers. And like I said at the beginning of the talk, that's its own prison. So when we're lucky to experience some degree of greed, anger, delusion going away, we want to practice then leaning in, showing up, moving into the world, feeling what we feel, seeing what we see, responding, so that we can see how we can be in the middle of the mass without the greed, anger, and delusion. That's really the full fruiting of the practice, is when we see that we don't have to be in the soft, safe place in order to be free, but we can be right where it's most difficult to be and be free. Isn't that the kind of freedom we want? To be right where it's most difficult to be. That's real freedom. This is from the Dalai Lama. And he was talking about, somebody asked him about the working with the Chinese government, and most of you know the history, but in case you don't know it, well, so um, in, originally back in the 50s and then through the 60s, uh, the Chinese moved into Tibet and uh, burnt down, destroyed most of the monasteries, and there started a migration of the leadership, both the Buddhist leadership and other leadership in the country, in the place, they migrated into across the Himalayas into India. It's just a terrible cultural genocide over those many years, even to this day. And so somebody asked the Dalai Lama, like, how do you deal with this? And he said, um, or the person asked, why didn't you fight back against the Chinese? And the Dalai Lama looked down, swung his feet a bit, and then looked back up at us, and he said with a gentle smile, <clears throat> well, war is obsolete, you know. Then after a few more moments, his face grave, he said, of course, the mind can rationalize fighting back, but the heart, the heart would never understand. Then you would be divided in yourself, your heart and the mind, and the war would be inside you. This is a good example, because it's not like the Dalai Lama hasn't lived an engaged life. I mean, if we looked at his schedule over, you know, whatever number of decades it's been now, five decades or so, 50 years or so, he's just constantly been teaching and advocating and doing the best he can to make things better for his people, both in Tibet and outside. Um, but it's like, he could have just retreated like I just, you know, be in my little beautiful retreat in Dhammasala in northern India in the foothills of the Himalayas. People treat me like this holy person. It's kind of nice. They bring me, you know, tea with milk and sugar and delicious, you know, and everything sweet and nice. Or you know, you can try to deal with global politics, you know, and a bunch of Westerners who think you're the next best thing and all the, you know, craziness of celebrity and this and the that, that whatever, you know, we might imagine his life is included. Because 
that's his practice, right? To put it all down and to pick it all up. And not to say, you know, monks, Buddhist monks shouldn't have to deal with jet-setting around the world and talking to leaders who don't know the first thing about this or that. And, you know, that's all pretty bothersome. So we have these examples of people who are fully engaged, I mean, in a relative sense at least, but are deeply immersed in their practice of putting it all down, putting down attachment, not believing that attachment is how we engage the world. Fear, the attachment of fear, the attachment of greed, or any fixedness, any fixed view. And this is a very interesting time for that. I find for myself very interesting how to keep showing up, how to be fierce, like to lean in in fierce ways, in engaged ways, in powerful ways, without being attached, without believing that I need to be fixed or anything has to be hard. Can our engagement be enlivening and enlightening? Or does it have to be a heavy trip? That's how we know that our engagement is off, is when it becomes debilitating and exhausting. Now, of course, we'll get tired, but there's a sweet tiredness of having done a good, you know, done good work. What do they call that? The sleep of the just or something like that, right? When you sort of put your heart into something, you've given it your best, and then you rest. You feel like clean at the end. But when we're attached, it's not easy to rest. It's not even easy to put it down because we're attached. We're doing it out of greed, out of fear, out of hate, out of some fixed view. And that has implications. And you know what the implications are? The world we have right now. The reason things are the way they are now, it's not because there are bad guys or stupid people who don't understand the way it is. It's because we're all caught in fixed views. And our fixed views reinforce other people's fixed views. And their fixed views reinforce our fixed views. And we have a war. And this is what war looks like. You know, all the fear, all the mistrust, all the hate, all the sense, all the certainty that they're over there and we're over here. Right? And so part the first step is, like, are we willing to put it down? Now, here's an interesting story before I open it up for discussion. I want to save some time to hear from people in the group. But just some of you know Thich Nhat Hanh, this Vietnamese Buddhist monk who's uh, near the end of his life. He had a really significant stroke about a year ago, still alive, but um, not really able to talk much at all anymore. But anyway, he's, uh, he's got all the credentials of the person I was talking about, someone who's like been powerfully engaged with the Vietnamese people and all the trauma that they've suffered over the last 50, 60 years, longer, and, uh, and many other social justice issues. And, uh, so 9-11 happens. He was, happened to be in San Diego at, uh, 
the monastery there, Deer Park Monastery outside of San Diego at the time, with the monks and nuns and lay people who lived there. And of course, because his whole sangha, his whole organization has this real history of social engagement, they all wanted to do something because they understood that when something this big happens, there's going to be this pushback, all this fear, all this hate. And the next day, instead of getting to work to prevent this sort of reaction that they all knew was going to happen, what did he do? He got a bunch of vans together. He took everybody to the beach, right? And he made them play, right? And they were running around on the beach playing whatever games they were playing. And then the next day, they got to work. Because probably it wouldn't have been easy to sit. He could have had a retreat day, but it might not have worked so well, right? Because we would have just had more time to worry. Right? We've taken the quiet time and just freaked ourselves out even more. So he probably the meditation object needed to be a little bit stronger, like playing with your friends, playing tag or you know volleyball or whatever they played. And so we need to remember that, like in terms of going to zero, meditation isn't always the best way. Sometimes it's taking a walk with a friend and noticing the geese flying down the river or knitting or watching a funny movie or doing a deep relaxation or a yoga class that's really about putting down the load and not about toning the abs or something (laughs) like that, where we're really given permission for a moment or for moments not to feel, because that's its own delusion to think we have to hold the suffering of the world on our shoulders. That's a misperception. That people are suffering is not a misperception. But that I have to personally be burdened by the suffering of the world is a misperception. It's hard to explain, but you'll, in practice, you'll see that that's true. That there's a way that we can sense the very real suffering in the world and be enlivened by that sensitivity to the suffering of the world and not burdened by it. So I want to leave it here so we can hear from each other. Remember, you got to point the mic right at your mouth in this way, not up and down. And uh, it's nice if you want to say your name, but we do record on Sunday nights, so just keep that in mind. We have those talks up on the website. So who would like to begin? Questions or your own understanding of the stance between seclusion and engagement and how you've become wiser about how you do that? What comes to mind? Yes, please. Hi, my name is Pam. Um, I'm kind of learning this dance uh, now. I'm volunteering at Juvenile Hall in downtown St. Paul, and I go in for an hour to the girls' unit, and I went in feeling like I needed to fix things, like I needed to make visible changes, make things better. And what I'm realizing is I just need to show up and spend that hour with them. That doesn't include anything about me. And then I retreat and go home and, and process it. But I'm realizing that it's okay to just show up. And like in those places where there's a lot of suffering, a lot of confusion, the uh, <clears throat> on the surface we're going to think somehow we're going to get contaminated by their suffering. I mean, I know we don't intellectually think that, but you know, it's like so. It's like part of what you're discovering 
in that willingness to do that kind of work is like, no, it's liberating to do that work. It's enlivening to do that work. And, you know, it always sounds like a cliche when people like you say, it's such a privilege to be able, like 10 years later, you know, having done that work, and you go, my God, it was such a privilege to be able to do that work. It was one of the most important things in my life. I am so grateful. And then people think, oh, that's, you know, that's just what people say about that. But that's actually how people see it. Because it, it turns out they realize that leaning in is liberating. It's, enga- it's enlivening. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Who would like to go next? What have you been learning? Yeah, Char- Charlie, over here. Uh, my name is Charlie. Um, and I just wanted to say, Mark, I appreciated that last comment about how um you know sometimes the right move in the dance is definitely not meditation um and that's something that i've learned gradually on my own spiritual path of uh you know at first being really into meditation and like trying to meditate trying too hard to meditate um where i wasn't meditating and then kind of learning that there are other experiences I need to mix in, like, you know, exercise or um, sometimes, like, really intense dancing or listening to music that really channeled a certain kind of emotion that was pent up. And then I could go to the cushion and settle in and have a different type of experience. Um, and so I just wanted to share that and sort of encourage everyone to explore how your spiritual path can involve activities that are a good, um, what's the word, a good uh, counterpart to meditation. Yeah, or medicine, like always about spiritual medicine. But just remember, Charlie, you might have had to do what you did to learn what you learned. Do you know what I mean? So it's like sometimes we overuse a certain kind of medicine, sure. but we learn something about it, right? And then... Again, like you suggested in what you said, having learned what you learned and now learning these other skillful means might then really allow you to use the more formal flavor of meditation in a more skillful way. So it's, yeah, yeah, I appreciate what you said. Who would like to go next? Yeah, please. Uh, My name is Justin, and I guess I'm the half half that kind of wants to like withdraw from everything but i'm you know i'm my work i have to work with people all the time so i I have to lean in but i'm torn so it creates that inner conflict because a lot of times i just don't want to deal with people but i have to every day and i don't know i just don't know how to really deal with i understand that before you can change something you first must accept it so you're not coming out of greed anger and delusion but it's hard not to resist what you're doing if you're just doing it to get money, which is kind of greed. But then again, that's you got to do something to get make a living. So you know, every day you're doing something that you don't really want to do to get money. You know, so. But, but as long as you're, I mean, the, you have to see it in the bigger picture. Like, are you living your life? for the purpose of awakening and giving your life away for what's good. 
Like, what else are we going to do? You can't take anything with you. So what would be, like when we're really reflective, the whole point to be free, to be unburdened as a human being, emotionally unburdened, psychologically unburdened, spiritually unburdened, what would we do but give that life away for the benefit of all beings? What else would we do with the freedom, whatever freedom one might realize in life, the natural, organic thing that that living being will do is give their life. But it doesn't mean you're going to become a Martin Luther King. It might be that your smile at the grocery store makes a difference. You know, maybe that's simple. Or the way you brush your teeth is like a beautiful art form (laughs) that inspires your partner. (laughs) I mean, who knows? Got some more time? Who else would like to share? Yeah, over here, Megan. Um, I was thinking about... Got to get it real close, Oh, Megan. sorry. A couple of different things. But um, I've definitely worked a lot with fear in the last several years, and I think definitely the last couple of years, um, having situations where I really didn't feel like I knew what to do or like I was going to do the right thing or feeling unqualified. Um, and it's almost like over that time, having to do that so many times, I've come to like know fear very well, but kind of to trust it because you, you start to see that, um, the fear and the situation are like very separate in terms of like situations working out. Um, and so I don't know, I see, it's almost like you just, you have these two separate things that you're aware of where like the fear is there, but then the situation apart from that. Um, and seeing it as, I, I almost feel just like a lot of gratitude for that because I think there's a lot of things I wouldn't have done, um, or wouldn't have learned if I didn't have to. Um, and then I don't know, applying that to other situations in my life as well. Yeah. What I, what I heard in, in what you were saying, Megan, is like, what I mentioned earlier, when, when whatever is going on and it seems appropriate to lean in, to act, to engage, remember, thinking that our engagement has to be perfect or thinking that we're not going to cause suffering for ourselves or for others, the fear of that isn't helpful. The important thing is to learn not to be perfect. If we think engagement that we engage when we can be perfect, we'll never learn. It's like we'll just get really tight. So it's like that's the interesting thing. And remember, if you're never acting out any fear, greed, anger, and delusion, you're not learning. Because you have to see, oh yeah, I was off there. I was afraid there. That's the hardest thing in the world to really see the mistake. That's how we have to see the mistake to be free, to not keep repeating it. Yeah, thanks. Greg, you want to go? You get the last word, Greg. So recently I watched my mom pass away, and uh, in her last couple of days she couldn't respond. She couldn't. I wasn't sure if she could hear me or if she could see or anything else, and uh, my sister encouraged me, well, just sit with her. And at first it wasn't 
easy because it's like, well, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. And I really struggled with it. And then I realized all of a sudden, well, what do you suppose showing up is all about? It's precisely in this moment when you don't know what to do that you let that go and just be there. That's, for me, the key to being present. That, to me, is the key to surrendering, is to just let myself not know what to do and be there. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to end our time together. Thanks, Greg, for that. Let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Appreciate being in the room together. Just enough time to take one or two breaths. Just a sense of this inner smile to each other as we wish each other good luck and successful practice as we do, each of us do this stance of engagement and letting go, putting things down. Thanks again, everyone, for coming tonight. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.